Welcome to Home Education Matters, the weekly podcast supporting you on your home education journey. We are joined by Dr. Naomi Fisher, and I am very excited to have Naomi with us because Naomi is one of those names that is like a kind of you hear as a mythical figure in the home ed world. <laughs> no, you're laughing, but it's true. <laughs> and when I told some of my friends I was interviewing you for my podcast, they were like, oh, like that. <laughs> and I told I told a friend of mine who's not at all into home ed. And I said, oh, I'm interviewing this amazing person for my podcast. And he just looked completely blank. And I, and he's into Formula One. And I said, well, imagine that little Formula One podcast you watch. And they had Toto Wolf coming on, who's like the head of head of Mercedes. He was like, oh, wow. I was like, no, <laughs> it is that big. So I'm very excited to have you with us. <laughs> Naomi, <laughs> I know you are the Toto Wolf of Home Ed. Um, Today, Naomi and I are going to be talking a little bit about just autonomy and unschooling, but with an eye to screen use, because I know you've written an article recently about screen use, and I actually did my uh, thesis in social media use, and so I've read quite a lot of research about that kind of thing too, and so I think it could be quite an interesting chat. So, Naomi, first of all, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, and would you be able to tell us a little bit about yourself for anyone who doesn't know you, which is a bit mad? Um, That would be great, thank you. (laughs) Yes, so I'm a clinical psychologist, and I have two children, and they have never been to conventional school, so they were home educated from the start, and they now attend a self-directed learning community part-time. Um, and I wrote a book a couple of years ago called Changing Our Minds, and that really came out of watching my children learn as they didn't go to school and seeing how very different their learning and their development was to what I had been taught as a psychologist child development was about. And I I started, the more I watched them, the more I saw what they were doing and how they were learning, the more I thought there's something really odd about the fact that I've, you know, I've got, I have a PhD as well as a doctorate in clinical psychology. I have a, a PhD in developmental psychology. So I have a lot of training in child, child development. And in none of it did anybody ever talk about the role of school in child development. They never said, you know, all the studies we learned about this is how children's thinking develops. It never said, but of course, this is in the context of them spending 30 hours a week at school. And it was like school was this invisible intervention into childhood. And as a psychologist, you know, I, I work individually with children, young people and adults. And if I say see somebody for like 20 hours a week, that's thought of as quite a lot. I mean, not 20 hours a week, 20 hour, 20 weeks for one hour, you know, so like 20 sessions. That's yeah. thought of as quite a lot of intervention. But yet at school, with putting children in this environment where they're there for 30 hours every week for like 13 years. And we're not really discussing what impact that has on them and what their development might look like if they weren't doing that. Was all the literature and the developmental studies, was that all based on parent influence and that kind of thing? So it just didn't it didn't reference, you know, the sort of the huge amount of time they spend away from the home. It didn't. Well, it, well it's odd when they look at child development, they look at things like, you know, how do children develop socially? How do they develop different cognitive skills? At what point do they become able to think in this way? Or at what point in their lives is the kind of play-based learning? You know, when is it all about imaginative play? And then how does it move on? And at no point did it say, for example, let's talk about imaginative play. So there's a lot of literature about how important imaginative play is in the early years, you know, under fives. And we've got nurseries and things are set up for children to do lots of imaginative play in that kind of time and parents generally know that you'll be able to you can find lots of stuff about how to encourage imaginative play in young children and then they get to five and imaginative play is progressively sort of de-emphasized in the system so whereas you know in reception classes and nurseries you'll have a home corner and you'll have a place for them to play that they're digging as you move up the school by the time you're in year two or three you won't have those things anymore. The expectation is that play is left for playtime and that adults don't sort of encourage it in the same way. What adults are doing now is they're encouraging reading and writing and maths. They've sort of shifted their emphasis on what to what they, they focus on. And what I observed in my own children and in other children that I saw, because of course I was home educated, so I met lots of other home educated children, was that 
some children did things in a really different times time kind of what's the word time scale to others so I met children who weren't really doing much imaginative play below the age of five for example and then when they got to sort of eight or nine it was like something changed and suddenly they were in this imaginative world and it was often based on video games that they played so they it's interesting we going to talk about screens but um I would meet children who were like immersed in the world of Minecraft and it was all about role play and working things out. And I would listen to my own children playing with other children in Minecraft. And I would hear all these amazing conversations they were having, all these negotiations, all this stuff. And I would think, you know, we talk a lot in psychology about how important the skills that children learn in imaginative play are in those really early years. We don't really talk at all about how important imaginative play, particularly via video games, might be in seven, eight, nine, ten-year-olds, because it's almost like it's invisible. I'm it's guessing like that's we've, because we've, it's not in the school system. So it's not in the school they system. They would never anymore. look into it. Mm. Exactly. It just isn't part of the way we think about childhood in the same way. And I just thought, wow, that's really interesting. But also, what if lots of children are actually missing out on really important developmental stages because the school system channels them into what they should be doing. So, you know, by the time you're eight or nine, if you talk to a child who goes to school by eight or nine, they will have learned that there's work, learning, and there's play, and the two things are different, and play is less valuable. You know, Mm. play is what we do at playtime or what we do when we've finished our homework. It's not the kind of the main thing of childhood. And if you meet home-educated children who've never gone to school, they don't learn that. They never yeah. learn that. So they never get to that stage where they're like, this is my this is my work, this is my play, play isn't so important. And I was like, well, isn't that mind-blowing, actually, to see these children learning so differently? And what if there's something really important, particularly for some kids, having this stage where your, your parent will still encourage you to really play and will help you play and will encourage you to play. And that could still be the main part of your learning, even though you're maybe now nine or 10 it or would, 11 or 12. It would be fantastic if there was some sort of longitudinal study where they took, uh, where they compared children, because my children are now 14 and 16 and they've never been to school. My son's now doing his A-levels yeah. from home, which is challenging. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And they still imaginatively play together. Now, most oh, teenage amazing. children, they can't even stand each other, but my two still play. And uh, just as you say, it was triggered by watching Star Wars when they're about eight. And <laughs> yeah. from then on, we still, all of us, even now together, they come and say, do you want to play First Order with us? And we yeah. all, and I play a character and they play characters. And even at this age when my son is now strappingly taller than me we all play and and actually I I remember the very first time it happened and very like you say it was when they were a little bit older so they're about seven or eight when all of this kicked off and we watched The Great Escape and they decided that they were then going to play The Great Escape as their imaginative play and they were quite young you know seven or eight and they would embody different characters so one of them would be a Nazi and one of them would be the Holtz or whatever the prisoner was and wherever we went they would be playing this game, which, as you can imagine, was deeply embarrassing. Yes, because tricky. one of them would be shouting in a kind of Germanic voice, and yeah, yeah it was. <laughs> but even then, I never stopped them because, as far yeah. as I was concerned, it's just such a valuable thing, isn't it? Imagine amazing. to play, especially between siblings, it's lovely, isn't it? So amazing, and that's so interesting that they're carrying on. And I think that's mm. another great example of how, when I was talking about school being this invisible intervention, I think it's a way we. Children learn things like, it's time to stop playing now. You know, I've had children say that to me. Oh, I'm too old to play now. You know, I can't play now. I've got to do my work. Mm. They just, and we don't even think about them learning those messages. That isn't something that comes into our discourse. So so if you talk to, a, you know, if you looked at sort of developmental psychology literature, there won't be anything. Oh, well, I may be wrong, but I have never seen anything about imaginative play in teenagers. Mm, Whenever I look at it, I don't find anything about it. Or I think they I just find, don't do it. <laughs> they don't. They, well, actually, mm. I, you know what? I think they kind of do. In they, they kind of. But I think they do it through video games. Yeah, they do it a in a different way. Them. They do it in a different way, and we don't value what they do. We don't typically. We don't value teenage play, older children's play, in in a really different way to younger children. You know, we. As I say, we kind of there are whole websites devoted to how to set up imaginative play for your younger children. You know how to set up small world play and how to set up invitations to play and all that kind of thing. Whereas with teenagers, it's all about how to stop them 
spending all their time playing. <laughs> Actually, we denigrate the kind of playing that they're drawn to. Typically. Is that because you think it's generationally different for us? So because it's not the kind of play that we did. Do you think if they were um, <clears throat> trying to think what play I did, but I just kind of, you know, hung around on street corners, that kind of thing. And <laughs> yeah. and if they did that, do you think we would feel a bit more happy about it? Because in actual fact, now I think about it, I seem to recall that when teenagers do that, they put on loud alarms that only teenagers can hear and things like that to scatter them like like herds of well, animals. When they're holding it, when they're in street corners. Yeah, that I mean, kind of thing. Yeah. They put on those alarms that only teenage ears can hear, which is just inhumane. It's, it's beyond odd, anything. isn't it? I think it's we odd. do have a strange relationship with teenagers in our society. We do tend to denigrate them a lot, and we do tend to try and control them. Um, I think there are some things that are more valued than others, like board games, which are obviously rigid and much more rule-bound than imaginative play. But generally, if you think of the way in which teenagers play, so it's not just video games, there are things like role-playing games, like Dungeons and Dragons, that kind of thing. It's also play. But again, it's kind of seen as a bit, it's seen as geeky. It's mm. seen as, you know, not like, not a worthwhile use of their time. It's it's odd how much we just totally don't value what they're learning and what they're getting out of that kind of thing. We think that they should be focused on the curriculum. I wonder if that is partly because some of these things like Dungeons and Dragons or video games are quite solitary, <clears throat> or at least physically solitary, in as much as they're not physically with other people. And also they tend to be indoors. You can do them in like a little corner of your bedroom. And I think as parents, we sort of, I don't know, we all our alarm yeah. bells go if our teenager spends too long in their bedroom. That's true. I mean, Dungeons and Dragons is real life. You can, you know, you can get together with a group of people. People are doing it all over the place, getting together and playing. And of course, but it, that's another interesting thing, isn't it? Because that's, if you think about the kinds of play that we value and the kinds of play that we don't value, outdoor play is often really highly valued. Un outdoor, unstructured play, you know, often people, I think lots of home educators have this idea that, you know, let children loose in the forest and they'll play and play and play and they'll make amazing dens. They'll all be wonderful. And that's great for some children, not all children, and a certain time in their lives. But at some point, most of them get to the point where they're like, actually, I'd like I need something a bit more here. I need something a bit different. And that's understandable. You know, if you put me outside in a forest all day and said, you know, play and create things, I would actually be like, you know what? I'd rather read a book. I'd rather do other things. And I think we we have trouble with that transition. So we we kind of value that kind of play, but then we don't value the other things that older kids might want to do in the same I way. I found that as my children got a little older, that when they were younger, they were very interested in how things worked. So going to a forest, yes, building stuff, constructing, yeah. deconstructing quite often as well. Yeah. Um, and as they got older, my daughter became much more interested in how people work. And my son yeah. became much more interested in how society works. And so all of their gameplay now seems to be based on role playing with where my daughter's concerned and where my son's concerned. It's things like strategy games yeah. and those kind of risk based games. And yeah. I wonder if partly um, it's that shift where they previously would go into a forest and make things for pine cones now they want to see how other people would respond to different scenarios that's a really interesting point because i think play is a place where we can experiment with ideas and the ideas that we're experimenting with are different at different stages in our lives aren't they so very young children are experimenting with all sorts of social stuff but it's quite often you know the things they play about are the things they see they play about school even home educated children play about school and they <laughs> play about birthday parties and they hope you know they they play that what's happening in their lives and then as they get older the stage widens for them the way they see the world widens and so their play gets dramatically more complex as well but they're still just play is such a great place to explore things like that you know my son is also really into strategy he's always been into strategy and he's always been into um mysteries so in fact his you know you're talking about your children playing about being nazis my son has had an ongoing interest in murder mysteries since he was really young we have a funny book he wrote when he was, well, he wrote, you know, he, he dictated it and my sister-in-law wrote it down for him when he was about six and it's called Murder Isn't Funny. And basically for a long time, everything he did was about murder mysteries and death. And he's still really interested in that. He's read all of Agatha Christie and he's lo he loves kind of, you know, escape rooms, solving stuff. And it's just like, it's such a play, is such a great way to explore all of those ideas. And actually, 
so creative, such a creative place to explore it, I think, play, because it's so different. So reading an Agatha Christie where it's all there for you, mm. you know, to doing something where you yourself are maybe creating strategic situations or solving mysteries, you're part of it in a way that you're just not when you're reading a book. For someone who's very comfortable with their home education journey, I can see why you you sort of approach that as, you know, my son is exploring his existential identity and it's all wonderful. But for somebody who may be a little more insecure about about home education, they may, you know, feel that they're being judged by other people because their child is like obsessed by death. And they may be they may they may think, you know what, I really want to to respect his rights to pursue this as an interest but could he choose something else that people <laughs> don't judge me on <laughs> wouldn't it be great and I definitely wasn't confident you know now my children are 11 and 14 so again I can sort of see how it's followed through but I definitely couldn't when he was five or six and we had a long stage where the only game he wanted to play was real life plants versus zombies I don't know if you know plants versus zombies <laughs> yes. but basically you have plants and you have zombies and the plants shoot at and kill the zombies so it was, I used to have to be the plant. He used to have to be the zombie. I had to sit there going boom, 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 boom at one point, And he would, cl- he would slowly die. <laughs> and that was what he would want to do. Shakespearean <laughs> style. <taking laughs> yes, it was, like, it was a bit like that. Because that's what it's like with the zombies, right? They get wounded, then they get wounded a bit more, then they get wounded a bit more, and then finally they die. <laughs> their bucket comes off their head. You know, there's all sorts of stuff that happens. Yeah, so... But it, it definitely wasn't like that at the beginning. I mean, I think, you know, writing my book was very much a process of watching what was happening with my children and with the other children I saw and thinking, how does this all connect with my psychology training? How does this? Because I think there's so much here which isn't being talked about in the mainstream when the mainstream talks about child development or how children learn we're just not talking about it because home education is kind of off the, off there in this silo where people what people think it is is so different i think to what it really is but also the mainstream just isn't really interested in how children learn they think they know how children learn they think they know how children learn at school and i think they all assume that what we're doing at home is basically just school except mm. probably a bit less well because they're only on their own you know that's that's what they imagine and mm. so they don't know that actually you look at these children and you're like, wow, this is what happens when you don't put someone into school for 30 hours a week. And it's really different. You see, I mean, um, I've got a I've got a theory about school that is basically that as the children get older, schools have to be able to quantify what the what the child who the child is in a way mm-hmm. in order just to be able to justify their existence as a school and so imagination and play is so difficult to quantify that they just it just becomes relegated it's interesting you talk about zombies and imaginative play because my daughter is now working towards her english language igcse and there's a part about creative writing which surely is when you're allowed to really let your imagination go wild but no because she wants to write about zombies and In all the literature and all the Marx themes, it says don't write about zombies because children always want to write about zombies. And so, yeah. and examiners, and you think, well, if they want to write about it, yeah. it's telling us something rather wonderful. But no, apparently, you know, they it's 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 the thing that all children want to write about. So they don't like people writing about zombies. But it's uh, it's a perfect example of how they want we, you to be imaginative right up until the end of their boundary of when they don't want you to be any more imaginative than that. They want you to be imaginative within their prescribed boundaries and I think that's the way that school works generally like you know they want you to be asking questions and engaged but only about what you're meant to be being taught right now so you're sitting in your maths class they want you to be you know thinking about it creatively but it has to be within the maths shaped box you can't be thinking about what you know why animals developed with Lots of them have four legs, for example, and others have two legs. You can't go off on that rabbit trail, whereas you can as home educators. So that's why everything connects to each other. And I think there's something really, really powerful and magic that happens when children are allowed to continue with that kind of learning where things follow rabbit trails rather than now we're doing maths, now we're doing English, now we're doing history, and they all exist within these boxes. And you mustn't think outside the box because that would be you going off topic. A lot of that is from a practical perspective, where if you have mm. 35 children in a classroom all going off on tangents, you've got chaos, right? So <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> it would be fun chaos, but it yes. would be chaos. But the interesting thing is, you see, that they manage that in early years. So our school, people always say this to me, yeah, we can't do this, it's not possible, it's not programmed. But you look at early years, in lots of ways, the principles of a good early years set- setting are, I think, the principles of 
home education, how young people learn, that you basically go to a good nursery, they will be setting up different things for children to learn based on their knowledge of the children. And they will actually change. You know, I've known nurseries that they've had children that are really interested in fish and they've developed whole displays about fish or they're really interested in diggers. So they go down the digger route. It's a bit like the zombies. If young children are interested in zombies, Mm. they'll help them explore that interest in zombies. And then they allow the children to choose. So nobody says, come on, you've got to learn about fish now because everybody's learning about fish. That's the only thing. We give them autonomy within that setting. And we give them autonomy about other things, like we give them autonomy usually to go to the toilet when they want. Mm. Often in a good nursery, they can go outside if they want and come inside when they want. And then as they get older, we do that less and less and less to the point where by, by the time they're 14 or 15, people say, oh, I couldn't let thy teenagers go to the toilet. It would be mayhem. It's like, so what are we doing between the four-year-olds and the 15-year-olds where they can't do that stuff now, but they could then? Is that and some sort of fear response, do you think? I don't know, some sort of fear-based thing where they, I don't know, they're worried that as the children get older and bigger, they're more outnumbered? Because I know I, I talk <laughs> briefly and it's it's quite scary teaching secondary because I'm, what, five foot four and everyone was, yeah, all the guys, all the, yeah, all the, all the boys yeah. who were like only 11 or 12, they were bigger and a bit rowdy. And yeah. it is physically quite intimidating when you're alone in a classroom with sort of 35 strapping, strapping men, in effect, you know? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, I think it's something to do with the fact that we think in schools that we must control what children learn and we must make them do certain things, no matter what the children think. So that becomes increasingly difficult as they get older. So in secondary school, in order to make them follow the curriculum, which school comes about as this is the most important thing, what learning this curriculum, you have to have a high level of control to get them to do that. So that's why it feels intimidating to you, because you are having to control this class of 30, 35 young people, who most of whom would probably rather not be here and would probably rather not be doing the things that you're trying to get them to do, which is a really difficult position if you think about it. And that's, I think, part of where I think we've gone wrong in education, that we've assumed that the way that young people have to learn how to be adults in the world is through us making them do things Mm. for 13 years. And I think that's that's again what we see in home education. And it was another thing that really blew my mind when I started seeing it, how you don't. I don't know if you know the research of Alan Thomas looking at home education. So he did this study looking at, it's called How Children Learn at Home. He published a book with Harriet Patterson. And he basically went and stayed at lots of home educators' homes and looked at what was going on. And he thought, he's a psychologist, he thought he was going to find parents teaching children. And that's what he was interested in. He thought he was going to see one-to-one teaching. Mm. Then he found that they weren't really teaching their children. Mostly it was about conversation it it was about all the things that we know happen as home educators it was about life it was about exploring things it was about helping the children follow their interests um and he sort of talks about how there's this kind of scientific pseudo-scientific process that goes on where in schools the adult has the power young people don't young people's only real power is to do what they're told or not do what they're told whereas at home if the if the parent is trying to teach the child something and the child's like I can't, I'm not interested or I'm just not here, the parent probably isn't going to carry on because mm. there's no point in doing that in a one-on-one situation. There's, you know, they're probably going to say, okay, we'll back off from this for a while. We'll try it again later. Or so be, there's a kind of more dynamic process between children and their parents. But what I found so interesting looking at how my children, other children became teenagers, is that as they became teenagers, when they hadn't gone through this process of being made to do things and controlled, they had this inner sense of themselves as the people who drove their learning and that they wanted to do things. They 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 were started to be capable of looking forward to the future and thinking things like, okay, I'd quite like to go to university. What am I gonna need to do to do that? I'm gonna need to do GCSEs. Okay, how might that happen? And that's so different to what happens in school where it's like everybody's going to do these GCSEs because that's what you do when you're 16. And I think there's just something so fundamentally different about that, which you can't really get until you see it happening. You know, that people say all the time to me with younger children, what about GCSEs? Aren't you worried about GCSEs? Mm. And I'm like, I'm not going to make them do these things, but why wouldn't I trust them to want to find their way in the world? 
to want to, whether that includes GCSEs or not. You know, why would I suddenly lose trust in them as they get to the age of 16 and suddenly say, right, sorry, guys, I've got to force you to do things now, having not done that all the way along and seen them all the way along, learning things in a way which I hadn't really anticipated. Is there a concern that if you if you allow the child to take their own time and take their own routes and make their own decisions, that they might turn around at, you know, 19, having not been interested and suddenly say, do you know what, I'd like to be a doctor, I'm going to apply to university. And you're like, well, yeah, I haven't got any GCSEs, buddy. So that's a bit tricky. So I would say that, of course, that's always a possibility. But it's also the case that people go through the whole of school, don't get GCSEs. 30% mm-hmm. of young people don't get GCSEs when they go through school. They also might get to the age of 19 and go, hang on a minute, actually, I wanted to be a doctor. It's not impossible. There mm. are graduate medical things. I mean, I don't know if you know the work of Sarah Jane Blakemore on um, neuroscience. So her, so her work is really interesting because she's a specialist in the adolescent brain. Okay, in the neuroscience of adolescent brains. And she's written a book called Inventing Ourselves. She's a professor of neuroscience. And she, so she's not, she's nothing to do with unschooling or anything or home education or anything like that. She's a, you know, she's the she's a neuroscientist. But she talks about how adolescence is now thought about as a period that goes from the age of about 11, sort of puberty, through to actually the age of about 25. And then when we look at the brain development that's going on. That that is a period of intense brain development. Lots of things are changing. And that means that it's a period of intense opportunity, but also vulnerability. A bit like the under threes. So we all know that this period under three is really important to, you know, that we need to really care for our children and nurture them at that stage in their lives. And she's saying this older period is really important too. But we treat it completely differently. Instead, what we do is we put them under really high pressure and make them all do exams at 16, which if you think about adolescence as going to the age of 25, 16 is really early on in adolescence. Mm. And she says, you know, at 16, children's level of brain development is just massively different in the same way as it is when they're four. You know, some of them will be years ahead neurologically and some of them will be years behind. So it's not really fair to test them all at 16 and say, this exam is going to define you in some way for the rest of your life. And she says that really people need a really good second chances in their late adolescence, by which she means the early twenties. Mm. And actually, if you think, when you start to think about it, it, it makes sense to me. I'm like, yeah, I can see how some people really, you know, in their teens, they're quite clearly dealing with lots of stuff. There's quite clearly loads of emotional things going on. It's not really the right time for them to be taking these exams, which are so important. But actually, by the time they come through to their early 20s, things are starting to calm down a bit. Plus university as well. I always thought university was wasted on 18 year olds. Yes, it's too early, isn't it? Mm. Wouldn't it be better if we could just if they could do it? when they're ready you know if Mm. if when you're ready to do GCSEs is when you're 19 I just my ideal would be that that is just isn't an issue you know what I mean that that isn't seen as behind it's just like okay now you'd like to do GCSEs and the the odds are that you'd be able to do them fairly efficiently at that point because you won't be doing them because you're being made to do them you'll be doing them because you want to do them and of course you don't have to do nine GCSEs like you do at school you just have to do the number that enables you to get to the next level and, and also the strange thing about things like medicine or all other kind of professional courses is actually once you're past the school age, there are ways to get into them which aren't quite as cumbersome as doing mm. GCSEs and doing the A-levels. There are often access courses. There are, you know, there are all sorts of different ways around these things, which people often aren't very aware of. I think they don't want children to be aware of them in their no. teens because then they might take those old alternative routes. <laughs> no, I think I think you're right, actually. One of the things I often talk about, which I think is really cruel, is that there isn't enough. I don't think teenagers are informed about the fact that 30% of young people fail GCSEs mm. and that that's kind of how the system's designed. Mm. So they can't all be successes at GCSE. That isn't going to happen. And yet what they're told at school is these GCSEs are the most important thing you're going to do in your life. If you fail them, you will you're a failure. be a catastrophe for you. Mm. You will be a failure. And what I see, because I'm a clinical psychologist, I see people who are struggling with their mental health. I see teenagers who, have, who believe that, who really believe mm. it, and they know that it's unlikely they're going to do really well at GCSE because by the time they're 13 or 14, you, you know, people know. And they, they think that's effectively going to be the end of their life. 
So they don't just think, I'm going to, you know, I might do badly at GCSE. They think, and that will mean that I'll never have an interesting job. It will mean, you know, I've had teenagers tell me that they've been told that people end up homeless if they don't have GCSEs. It's like, why? I can see why teachers are saying that. They're saying it to try and motivate them. Mm. But the impact on young people is horrible. It's like a pull. It's like a push-pull factor, isn't it? You're motivating by fear. Is You're motivating by fear, exactly. And, And... and what's so cruel about it is that it's a system where they can't all win. So you know that 30% of those young people, it, the, the fear option is going to come true for them because that's how the system works. Yeah. We interrupt this broadcast to remind you to like and subscribe to our podcast. And don't forget to join our Home Education Matters Facebook group where you can find details on all our podcasts, any links or resources mentioned, chat to our guests, request upcoming podcasts and even come on the podcast yourself. Do join us over there. I wanted to bring us back to one thing you mentioned about vulnerability and about how sort of um, adolescents between 11 and 25, they are at quite a vulnerable stage of their development. And I was thinking about screen use and because I, we've always had a very autonomous house here and I let the children play for as long as they want. I let them wake up when they want, shower when they want, you know, whatever. It's completely up to them. Uh, But the one thing I have restrictions on is screen use. And I've always Mm -hmm. had restrictions on screen use. And I continue to have restrictions on screen use, even though they're now, as I say, 14 and 16. And I think a lot of that control over that one element is um, because I have an awareness of of a certain amount of vulnerability that they're at this vulnerable age where they're exposed to many things, but perhaps not yet equipped to deal with them. So I wonder what you feel about that kind of element when it comes to screen use. Is there a sense that they are vulnerable and so we need to not control, but protect? And is there there a line you can draw between those two words, control and protect? Mm, That's such an interesting question, because I think that that kind of, runs through a lot of the way we think about childhood net. If children are vulnerable, do we need to put up firm boundaries in place to protect them? So I think there are some things we clearly need to do that with, like, you know, cars. We need to, we can't let them run in front of cars. We have to, that has to be a hard boundary. Things like technology, I think are a bit different because I think there's something here about a process of learning how to use them and learning how to make decisions about them. And Well, when we put a boundary around that's a very firm boundary, that can be appropriate at a certain time in children's lives, but we do actually stop them. If we take all responsibility for it, we stop them learning how to take responsibility for themselves. So if we always prevented a child from crossing the road, for example, you know, always up to teenagers, they're actually not learning how to cross the road. They're just learning how to do what they're told around cars. And with things like screens, and and it's not just screens, it's other things as well, I think we obviously have, there has to be a a stepping back so that children can start to make those decisions for themselves, because that's what they're going to be doing as adults. And a lot of that, the control is going to run out at some stage. At some stage, the boundary will, the ban will have gone, the limits will have gone. So it's like, how do we get to a point where they are taking control for these things for themselves? So I think that, I think that always needs to be at the back of our heads. You know what I mean? That any strategy, which is like, no, this is a ban, is going to expire and when mm. how are we going to deal with that expiring and also how can we create a situation where children are practicing the skills that they're going to need as, need as adults in childhood and adolescence because this is one of the things i think that goes wrong in our current in our school system which is that we control children and adolescents in the belief that we're helping them develop self-control, this is what people will often say, they often get mixed up between self-control and being controlled. So, for example, they'll talk about young people who have good self-discipline at school being those who do their homework or those who get to class on time. So complying with the demands Mm. of school is equated with self-discipline or self-control. But actually, that isn't what it is. That is about doing what somebody else tells you. And ultimately, what we want from our young people is that they are doing, they are able to regulate themselves and to take control of their own lives, do things. And I think what we see in a lot of the problem we see, I think, in universities, because universe going to university is a time of high vulnerability for lots of young people. A lot their mental health often takes a really serious dip at that point. And I think part of it is that they don't have any practice in making decisions for themselves 
And then suddenly they get to university. It's like now everything is up to me. You know, no one's going to chase me if I don't go to classes. No one's going to chase me if I don't write my essays. No one's going to make sure I eat healthy food. It's all suddenly up to me. And it's a bit like throwing them in a deep end. So whenever I talk to parents, I'm always saying, how can we help? How can you make the space for your children to be making those decisions whilst they are still under your roof? And whilst you're still there to pick them up when things go wrong, because I would rather that my 10 or 11 or 12 year old is making poor decisions that I can help them with than my 23 year old is making poor, deci- is poor decisions because it's the first time they've actually had any power to make decisions. Yeah, I absolutely see that. I suppose I think from my perspective, when it comes to certain certain screen use, not all screen mm-hmm. use, it's um, letting them flex their muscles can expose them to many things like my daughter she got an instagram account when she was uh 13 and Mm -hmm. i put restrictions on but not enough and within two weeks she was getting loads of inappropriate photos now she she is now 14 and she is savvy as anything she blocks people she no she's very good but she did not have to go through a baptism of fire to become that savvy and part of me thinks like and she learned a lot for sure and she can navigate things now but she was young to be learning that yeah, that's very young. No, I agree. And I think two things. One, I think you do have to say at some point, this is something I'm going to limit. I, I often tell the story of my daughter who I found watching a pornographic cartoon on YouTube when she was four. Mm-hmm. Um, and it wasn't so she couldn't read, she hadn't chosen it. It came up in the in the feed, you know, basically. Mm-hmm. She was just choosing the next Peppa Pig cartoon and it came up. And I said to her, You can't watch YouTube anymore by yourself at all. I'm going to take it off all your devices. If you want to watch YouTube, well, you and I can do it together. You can watch, um, you know, whatever it was, iPlayer, children's iPlayer. I will put things onto you that I know are safe for you at this stage. And she was very upset about that. She went ballistic. And I was, I just held it because I was like, I can't keep you safe. And I think there's something here about where are they safe and how much safety, how much where what sort of exposure can they should they be having at this age and for me pornographic cartoons is an absolute <laughs> it's a it was a cartoon so it wasn't real but you know it's just it was a it was a call for me that this is not an environment in which I can keep her safe and for example my daughter doesn't have a phone she's 11 nearly 12 I'm not going to be getting her a phone for a while because I don't think she can cope with the level of kind of immediate intrusion into her sort of personal space all the time I see that she can't manage that mm. so I wouldn't do that right now and, and that's I think interesting I, so yeah. you control screen use to a degree by just not exposing them to certain certain gadgets I suppose I think it's that I look at can I keep can I keep you safe enough here and if I can't then I'm not going then we're just not going to have that right now mm. But, but that when we do, I'm going to be right there with you and try and be involved with it with you and helping you learn. And at some point, she will, my son actually does have a smartphone. He's 14. I don't, ha- I don't have any concerns about his ability to manage that. Do you see what I mean? So it's like it, you're yeah. curating, you're always curating the space for them. That's how education, that's how home education, that's how parenting works. You are choosing what we allow into this space and what we don't allow into this space. And I absolutely don't think there's any reason why children or young teenagers need to should be exposed to porn or need to be exposed to porn. It's just it's just a limit that I mean it's a legal limit for a start, but I just had I don't have a problem with that. I just think that's safeguarding. What about those kind of grey areas where you have, you know, things on TikTok or Instagram that just mm. that you maybe find offensive or sexist or whatever, but but really yeah. aren't aren't pornography. But is that is that just basically a conversation to be had with the child at that point or the teenager? So basically what I my policy there would be A, it's individual. Okay. So I work individually with young people. I don't think you could predict necessarily you know as a parent, you know your child best. I have met some children who have been really negatively affected by videos on TikTok, for example. Um and actually, we know there's a whole really interesting field at the moment about social contagion via TikTok. I don't know if you know about this from your classes, but there's during the pandemic, it looks like lots of teenagers have actually have developed Tourette-like symptoms. Did you know about this? As a yeah. result of seeing influencers on TikTok doing Tourette's, so showing yeah. their tics. Um, 
So I think there is something very powerful about social media and influencing, but I do think it's it's an individual thing. I don't think there can be a blanket rule for everybody. Um, but I think the two the sort of the basic principles that I would have was A, you try and get in there with your child so you know what they're looking at, you know what they're doing, and you try and establish a trusting relationship so that they feel able to bring things to you. I think that's the key thing going forwards all the way through it. That if you if they are scared that they're going to show something to you and your reaction is going to be, well, I told you not to go on TikTok or I thought, oh, you know, then they won't bring it to you. Or, or that you'll say, well, that's it. You're banned from TikTok. Exactly. Or you're going to react really reactively and say no, which is kind of what I did, I have to say, with YouTube. But she was four, so it was a kind of different scenario. <laughs> I wouldn't do that now as a four. But, but if she said, I want a smartphone now, I would have a conversation with her about how difficult she finds some aspects of chatting with her friends really online she finds some of those things really difficult and what it's like to have that in your pocket so you mm. can never get away from it whereas right now she chats with her friends on her ipad and then she leaves that and then that's that's it it's kind of she can get away from it so i would have that conversation with her it wouldn't be a no i'm not letting you do this until you're the stage it would be okay i have these concerns about that and i wonder what that would be like and I would try and make it an open dialogue with them, with her, with the knowledge that at some point that is going to change. Do you see what I mean? That it's any, mm. yeah, it's it's hard. I guess it's a dynamic process. I think it's a really dynamic process between children and adults. But I do think that sometimes as a parent, you do need to be ready to say, I'm sorry, you can't manage this safely and I can't keep you safe here. And so it's my responsibility as a parent to stop you from this. And I would, I would, I mean, if I, yeah, it's horrible. I horrible 13 year olds being sent inappropriate messages on Instagram is horrible. Mm. And there's no reason why I don't think as a parent, you have to be okay with that. It's absolutely not okay on every level. If they can't, if they're not at a stage where they can protect themselves, like, you know, she, what she couldn't read, she wasn't at a stage where she could choose what she was watching. I'm not going to make her vulnerable in that way. Mm. I found as a parent who spent you know, sort of the last 13, 14 years with their children, sort of always focusing on autonomy and having discussions always about everything. So everything was a, you know, a, a multilateral decision. Yeah. Um, I found it very difficult and I still find it very difficult to just go barging in and say, do you know what? I can't keep you safe on this. You can't go on it's Instagram hard. anymore. I find yes. it, it, it goes hard. against everything I yeah. feel yeah. It, I am as a yeah. parent. So even now, I, I sort of um, we have we have limits exactly like you say. So she doesn't have this sort of like I nearly said weapon, but it feels like that sometimes. You know, a phone in her pocket that is full of this stuff. You know, it stops at six p.m. for example, so she doesn't have it sort of late into the night on her own in in her room. But part of me feels even that is how is she going to build up her self control to turn her phone off if I'm turning it off for her? I think that's a valid question that for yourself because at some point you're going to have to hand that responsibility over to her. So at some point, it is going to be her choosing. And it may well be that when you do hand that responsibility over to her, she will then make the decisions that you wouldn't have wanted her to make for a while. So I think, you know, there isn't, parents often think there'll be a sort of smooth segue for from you saying we stop at six to her take you over and then she'll stop at six herself or she'll stop at eight herself. More, more likely she won't. She'll go through that period of, oh, I can now watch it all evening and see what happens. And she has to go through that learning process for herself. Do you see what I mean? I think it's a difference yeah. between thinking that you're establishing habits for them, which they'll carry on with, which in my experience doesn't really work so much as a point of, there is going to be a point where she's going to have to work that out for herself. She's going to have to work that relationship out with her for herself. And it's a real gradual dance, isn't it, between parents? But I do, I, I, know, I know exactly what you mean about those when you're putting a high, hard boundary when that isn't what you usually do. I think that's really hard. And I, um, yeah, it's really when it comes down to safety that I think sometimes parents have to step in and do that. And I've, I suppose I work with young people who have quite serious mental health problems sometimes it's really hard like sometimes there's a kind of almost addictive quality in the way that they relate to social media in particular and we all know that because mm. I don't know about it most people know what it can be like to have that and then you need to be as your adult you need to be able to see that but also you need also not to be able to react it's so it's so delicate there's no <laughs> because 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 you need to they they're going to need to deal with these things in life and whilst you have the hard boundaries in place, they're not actually learning how to do that on their own terms. 
and there might be appropriate for some things at certain points, but it's always going to be moving towards them making more choices because that's that's what you want to happen, isn't it? You want them to exactly. grow up as people who can do this for themselves. And you're right, I think, that it's a dance, you know, and that you're constantly sort of balancing and weighing up these things. But it is tiring as a home educator when, <laughs> because obviously, it's, you know, you're doing it all the time. You never farm it out to anybody else. It's oh. it's always just you doing it. And, um, and one thing I wanted to ask you, actually, was yeah. when I was when I was doing my thesis, I discovered that it was on social media use. And I discovered yeah. that a lot of the research now says that it's not what platform you're using so much as how you're interacting when you're on the platform. So if you're very yeah. actively engaged, it's it's actually very good. It you know makes you feel feel great. But if you're just yeah. passively scrolling, it's it's really rubbish. Yeah. Um, and I wonder whether you, there's an element because I know we were talking about social media use and you seem pretty relaxed about having certain circumstances where you're like well no you know you're not old enough and it's just not right and I can't keep you safe whereas perhaps compared to gaming you might be a bit more relaxed about I wonder do you do you draw a distinction between how people are using you know what platforms they're using and how they're using their screen time I think I draw a distinction between the effect it has on the person rather than exactly what it is so if for example my children are what us are doing a lot of time on their screens and I'm seeing that they are not enjoying it and they're not happy about it. So to give another example, when my son was younger, he had a period of being totally into these games on the iPad where you have, which are basically free games, right? So this is when, this was quite early on in the the sort of when tablets started being a thing. There were lots of free games. Basically, in order to progress in the free games, you had to spend money. And it had to be real money. You had to get gems. And each of these these games advertised other games to you. So we at one point had 27 of these games on the iPad, all of which were freemium games, none of which you could really make much progress in unless you were spending money. And you they were, I mean, they were tedious games. They were utterly tedious because basically the point of the game was to make you spend the money on it. And I realized that he was basically in a state of frenzy all day. He was spending all of his pocket money, any other money he got on the gems for these games. And he was spending his whole day asking me, when can I have more money? When can I have, Mm. this is when he was quite young. You know, he wasn't Mm. able to really hold in mind money every week. When am I going to have more money? When am I going to have more money? When am I going to have more money? And I said to myself, this use here is not making anybody happy. It's making me miserable. It's making him miserable. He's not old enough to understand what's going on here. I had a conversation with him about it. So I was like, okay, so what could we do? I was trying to be all collaborative. How could we have, <laughs> how, what could we do here? Um, how could, you know, how, and he said, I know we could just stop paying electricity and then the money could come and we could use it on the iPad. That's and I was a like, gorgeous okay. child solution, isn't it? So we've got, so we know the level we're working at here. Okay, we know where he is in his mm. mentality. You know, he might have five pounds and gets given and it will go like that on the skates because that's how it works. It'll, it'll just speed up the progress of the building a house by two hours or something ridiculous. Mm-hmm. So I put in a hard ban about that. I said, I'm sorry, this isn't making me happy. It's not making you happy. And I don't think you can yourself stop to say say you want to stop about this. So I said, but what I do whenever I do something like that, and it hasn't happened very much often in our lives, is I then find, I try and find other ways to meet the need. So like with my daughter, I didn't want her watching YouTube on her own. So I found other ways that she could explore iPlayer, for example, in an environment which I was confident was not going to come up with pornographic cartoons. Mm. So in his case, I was like, okay, so what's he really enjoying here? He likes certain elements of these games. He likes the kind of building an empire element. So I am going to look really intensely for games that I can pay for, (laughs) that I'll just buy, where he can get that same kind of experience. And I'm going to put those on his iPad instead. So do you see what I mean? So it wasn't just yeah. that I was saying, no, we can't do that. I was saying, okay, so there's a need you're meeting here. I'm going to help you meet that need in a different way. It's um, interesting that you you mentioned about being responsive to each child and how they react to, you know, when they're being made unhappy. Like your son there was just, it wasn't making him happy, but he was still plowing yeah. on it with it. I had a similar circumstance with my son who's never been at all really interested in tech or games. And we started doing prodigy maths. Have you heard of it? It's like a very have, gamification yeah. of maths. Yeah. And um, he loves maths. He's very good at maths, loves it. Yeah. And he was about 10 and he became he would he would play it but he hated it at the same time but he kept playing it and kept hating it and afterwards he would come off yeah i think 
he just found the whole process of the maths and the game and the not yeah. getting the spells that he needed or whatever. And he would come off this game. I've never I've never seen him like it since. Never seen it. Yeah. Just exhausted. Like, you know, like a somebody who's been to work at a really hard job that they hate all day and then they come yeah. home. He was like that after playing two hours. And then yeah. about half an hour later, he'd be like, can I play again? And it'd be like, this is not like what is yeah. happening. So in the end, I did I did a kind of hard no, much like you yeah. said. I, I said, look, you can game and you can do maths. But doing yeah. them together is clearly not something you're enjoying. So No, and then I think you can open up a conversation. And we actually had a similar experience when my son was younger with a an app called Education City, which somebody gave us a kind of three-month trial on. My son also really likes maths. He's always really liked maths. And this Education City guy game, you had to get all of the maths problems perfectly right in order to get three stars at the end of the um, whatever session it was. And immediately I was like, mm, not really. This seems like a really bad way to learn maths, to have to get mm. everything right all the time. You know, it's always testing. The moment my son worked out that if he got one wrong, he would only get two stars at the end. He didn't want to do the maths anymore. He wanted me to do the maths because he was like, it, I mean, and it, it perfectly makes sense if you think about it in gamification terms. He wants mm. to get the, it's shifted the emphasis from doing the maths, which he really liked and was really fun, to I want to get the stars end because then I get this lovely thing you know with fireworks and, blah, 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 blah. and I think that's all part of how school sees childhood that you need we need to motivate children with these things we need to set up the rewards and I just think that's not helpful at all but I think there are things like that and actually it they're kind of being seduced into it the children are being seduced into it but you know because they're designed to keep them playing it and if they're not getting anything out of it that, and I, I also think for some children, sometimes a hard no is easier to deal with than a soft no. Yeah, it depends it on is the sometimes. child. Mm. Um, you know, and there are sometimes, yeah, it depends entirely on the child. Some children can manage a kind of, or we can use it a bit. But my children couldn't. They could not manage the, they couldn't manage, for example, with the gems, my son could not manage the, every week you'll have a certain amount of money which you can spend on the gems that was just awful for him and actually it was much he was so much happier once we were like there won't be any gems at all that's i it. think a lot of that nuance comes with age as well doesn't yeah. it where you can have these slightly more gradual boundaries when they yes, get yes and that's older. happened so for both of them now so they watch youtube now because I am confident that they are much they are able to manage it now they're able to navigate it the same with gems if they wanted now to do a game like that I would be confident that they would be able to kind of take that bird's eye view on it and think okay hang on a minute they would have some for a start they just have some um understanding of the value of money which they didn't which he didn't have at the time you know for him there was no real difference between actual money which I was putting onto the iPad and pretend money in the game there just mm. wasn't that distinction whereas now there is and that's that's just you know that's part of sort of expanding the protective circle I think, but I do think that sometimes it's and actually quite a lot of the time when I talk to parents sometimes I feel like I'm kind of giving them permission to say no actually that's not okay we're going to stop there we're not going to do that yeah and, and um, then the child will get very upset that's the other well, thing they, people often they do though they and, want, and then yeah. parents find that hard don't they yeah. because then their child is crying or or sort of like slamming doors and you feel yeah. that the relationship is being ruined and you've done it yes but but part of being a parent is keeping your child safe mm -hmm. and and you have to it's and it's never easy it's never obvious and it's and it's always a dance and you're going to get it wrong sometimes sometimes you might put in a boundary and afterwards you're like actually we didn't need to have that I was I've overreacted or actually that's my fear here rather than my appraisal of the situation but I think that's okay you know it's rupture and repair it's not about parenting isn't about never upsetting your child or never getting anything wrong it's about repairing things when you do and holding I think there's something about parents being able to hold that space where they say sometimes it's going I'm go sorry I'm going to have to do things that are going to be upsetting for you just in the same way as when they're two or three you grab their hand and you pull them out the road even if they are screaming and kicking you just you say I'm really sorry but, but I can't let you do that one thing you mentioned there was about um rewarding learning 
so people don't have that kind of internal motivation to learn and school is very big on that you know so obviously you do the maths and you get the stars kind of thing and one thing I've noticed um that there's that a lot of parents use screens in this way so they use screens as a kind of reward because they know their children love them so much they're like if you do your lessons in inverted commas or maybe not even in inverted commas maybe just lessons then you get your time on your screen I wonder how you feel about screens as a kind of motivator in that way so that I absolutely wouldn't do and I've never done and uh, when I talk about screens with parents I, I talk about the way in which we interact with screens and how that can actually kind of corrupt our children's relationship with what they do on screens so the two things that parents often do which are basically both marketing techniques is one that they make them really scarce so they'll make them artificially scarce in a sense you can have 30 minutes a day and then that's it or um you know, they, they, which is exactly how marketers try and get us to buy stuff, basically. They say, you know, only one left or this discount mm-hmm. code only lasts until tomorrow. And then they also use them as rewards. So if you use something as a reward, it will get associated in your brain with the bit of your brain that fires off when you have a reward and it will start to feel more rewarding. So that's why we like things like gold stars. You know, gold star in itself doesn't do anything, but it's been associated with well done, good boy, good girl, you've done well, approval. And it's associated with that reward part of your brain firing off. When we do that, we make the thing more attractive. So if you use something as a reward, you need to be aware that you will be making it more attractive to that child. You're stacking up the value. Mm. You're stacking up the value, but also it's more than that. You are, when I say corrupting the relationship, I really mean that because I think part of what I think is so important about what we can do in home education is that we can allow children to have a really straightforward relationship with what they do. So, for example, we don't do things like prodigy maths where, or education city where maths is about being rewarded for the stars. They do maths because they really like doing maths and they really enjoy doing maths. And that's kind of, when you see it in self-directed teenagers, it's amazing. You know, you're like, everybody else is sort of plowing through this maths because you've got to do it. And my children are doing maths because they really like it. And it's because <laughs> no one, I think it's because no one has messed up their relationship with maths. You know, I think when we get in there as adults and we start saying, you've got to do all this. And if you don't do this, I'm going to punish you. And if you do do this, I'm going to reward you. We we make the relationship between that child and maths about the adult approval of the adults, the kind of adult influence rather than just them and maths. And I think with screens, I think as much as we can step out and let that child have a direct relationship with screens, the better it will be for them long term. So what I mean by that is if you reward a child by letting them go on a screen, you know, you say you do all this, then I will let you do this. You make that screen more rewarding for them. Literally in their brain, it will feel more rewarding. And what you mean is that they will start choosing to do that whenever they can, because it's the special thing. You know, I, I'm trying to think of an example, but, but anything that's made this kind of special rewarding thing, they're going to be doing it not because they're thinking, do I really want to play Minecraft now? Is that my best option? Would I rather play Minecraft? Would I rather go outside? Would I rather read a book? Minecraft has this special reward thing about it now, and therefore they're more likely to choose it. So it's, but it's not just based on, do I want to play Minecraft? Do you see what I mean? That's what I mean by messing up the relationship. I, I want my children to be able to say, I like to play a video game now because that is the most, that is the best thing I can think of to do right now. And I'd really like to do it. And when I've had enough of it, I'd like, to, I'll, I'll, I'll stop. And I actually see them both being able to do that. Now, and the other so, thing you're doing, of course, is you're devaluing whatever it is you're, that you're having yes, to reward. Completely. So you're taking the value out of maths because you're saying there is no value. I'm going to have yes. to give you the maths value. Maths is something screen. to get through so that you get the prize, basically. Mm-hmm. And that we know from the research that that damages the child's relationship with the thing they're doing. So they did these great studies in the 1970s where they rewarded preschoolers for drawing pictures. So they did. So it was doing something they already liked doing pictures and they gave half of them stickers afterwards to reward them for drawing the pictures and the other half they didn't and what they found was that the children who were rewarded for being drawing the pictures once the reward stopped they drew less pictures than they had before yes this drawing became less intrinsically rewarding for them 
And I think that that was such a strong finding for me. I just think, you know, I'm always thinking that whenever I'm sort of tempted to think, oh, you know, because rewards are all sorts of different things. It can be approval. It can be kind of well done. Even that sort of thing can mean that the child is now no longer doing it because they want to do it. Do it. They're doing it because of adult approval, which is, of course, unfortunately, is what happens with elementary school. That is fascinating. And that is that is so true. I think for building internal motivation, it's very difficult when you're basically removing that and you're you're adding in these external motivators all the time. My last question for you, Naomi, is, is there anything that as home educating parents using screens ourselves that maybe we could sort of like think about how we use them or whether we should be more mindful or, or realistically, is it not sort of that relevant? And can we just carry on scrolling our Facebook happily? God knows home education well, is all over Facebook, so it's it difficult totally, not to be on Facebook. <laughs> I think it's similar to our children, really. It's not about, it's about what impact is this having on me and is it the impact I want to have, it, I want it to have on me. So, and I, you know, I've had times when Facebook has been an absolute lifeline. If you're at home with children and you can't get out very much, that's your place where you can meet people. And that's been amazing. And really, I don't know what it would have been like to home educate before that was the case. It must have been so different. Um, But I do think that that we need to be checking in with ourselves as to what is this? Is this helping me? Is this making me feel good? Is it not making me feel good? And actually, am I making a real choice here? Or am I just doing it because I don't have anything else to do? Like I I noticed when my children were younger, I spent a lot of time scrolling on Facebook. And one of the reasons was that they needed me such a lot of the time I could never really do things that I would have liked to be doing like reading a book because I couldn't guarantee that I would have enough time to finish yeah, the exactly page. you have Whereas to snatch respect, your moments yeah, right? you've got just mm. those teeny teeny moments you can read a couple of posts on Facebook but you can't sink into anything and that's hard and I think when I recognized that actually that meant that helped me because it meant I could think okay this is why I'm on Facebook all the time there was no point in beating myself up about that because it was a reality of the situation that I was I was constantly interrupted about stuff. But it wasn't making me feel good. It didn't help me kind of, I didn't feel like those moments that I was snatching, they didn't feel like good moments. They didn't feel like sort of replenishing moments. So actually, so I thought to myself, a bit like with my children, it's like, how can I meet that need somehow, some other way? And actually what I came up with was like, I learned how to crochet. And one of the reasons I learned how to crochet is partly because it was learning a new skill, which I liked. I liked doing something with my hands, but also you can put it down at any moment. It doesn't matter. You know, you just, uh, you can abandon it and nothing comes unraveled for it. <laughs> so I was just looking for little things I could do like that. And I actually found, for me, I actually found some games as well that I could have on my phone, which were good games. The other thing I found myself doing was spending time on things like Candy Crush, which were like, I think it's a bit like your son and prodigy maths. They're kind of rewarding, but there's nothing, there's nothing there. It's like you know, drinking nothing... Coca-Cola, isn't it? It's oh, like there's nothing. nothing. <laughs> it's like, yeah, you, and you don't feel good after mm. after doing it. So I actually did the same things I've done with my son, which is I went and looked for some really good, high-quality games that I put, that I really, things I like, that I also like problem-solving, and I like board games. So I did things like got Carcassonne, which is a board game on oh, my Yes, I love phone, Carcassonne. And yeah. other board games that I could play, which, again, games I could just do a couple of moves, and then I could abandon it. So I was specifically looking for things to meet that need so that I was feeling replenished by that little tiny moments of time I had off, rather than doing what I was doing, which was scrolling. Um, One I thing I found... At a very similar age, actually, that really transformed my personal um, involvement in home education, I suppose, or in how I was home educating the children was I was doing exactly the same thing. I I thought, well, I have no idea how long this moment is going to last, so I won't start anything. Yeah. And I decided, you know what, I'm just going to have to start starting things because otherwise I'm never going to do them. The children must have been about seven or eight. And I thought, you know what, I'm just even if I have a minute, I'm just going to do something that matters to me. And I started doing that. And actually, I started crocheting at exactly the same kind of time. As <laughs> fellow crocheters. Yeah, I never got <laughs> but, very good, I have to say. But, you know, that's all right. I think I've gifted crochet blankets to everybody oh, yeah. I've ever met. Like random people walking down the street. Please take it off me. I've got so many of them. <laughs> yeah. But I found that if I started things, even if I got interrupted... It was okay. And I found also that when the children knew what I was doing, they interrupted me less because they saw that I was doing something vaguely worthwhile, I suppose. The other thing I I heard, which I've used ever since I I read it, 
uh, was that if you're on your phone, it's helpful to tell your children what you're doing on it because they have no idea you could be doing anything on it. So I quite often I'm doing things for them, (laughs) organizing play dates or, you know, researching exams for them, things like that. And so what I do now is I sort of say things like, oh, I'm just having a look for a good exam for you or I'm trying to find a volunteering activity for you. It makes them feel that I'm not just... Yeah, and and it involves them in the process a bit more because mm. they are quite in- exclusive, aren't they? Phones they they exclude the people around you a little bit. They can be. I mean, the other thing I did was played games a lot with my children whilst I was on my phone. I mean, connected, so I would have Minecraft and we would play together across platforms, which was really good. But yes, I think there's something interesting you've said there also about the acknowledging that you're going to be interrupted, but it's still worth doing something. I think that's quite an important step. And maybe that, I think it's around seven or eight, I was able to do that as well. Because when they're younger, they're so, it's so, you almost don't have time to even think about something Mm -hmm. like doing crochet, do you? Because it's just so all immersive. Mm -hmm. Um, And I I remember actually trying to start doing something with Rule when my daughter was a bit younger and it was quickly clear that was not going to be an option because she was at the stage where she just was like, great, can I come in and unravel all your wool? <laughs> um, so they have to be at a particular stage to be able to do that. The, actually, the other thing I found helpful was being able to listen to podcasts. So I started just having headphones. I could just say, I'm just going to do this. I put it out because they were often also maybe had their headphones on. So it felt like that I could just have a little bit of time or listen to an audio book where I can just sink into another world for a moment and have a little bit of space and then I'll come back. Crocheting and listening to audio books is probably my favourite way to pass the time, actually. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I like the idea of showing them what you're doing. I used to, because I used to be aware that I used to read books sometimes. I have Kindle and sometimes I would read books on the Kindle app on my phone. And I realized that they weren't seeing that I was reading books because it didn't look like I was reading books. So I would say to them, I'm reading a book now, you know, you, and I actually, I would say we can read a book on your iPad if you want, you want to get, you know, so that that was, they knew what kind of thing was going on. Yeah. I, I find that even now when the children are older, I mean, they've always read a lot, but obviously as they get older and older, they, they read less and start, you know, gaming a bit more. But even now, if I'm reading on my Kindle, I will say, do you want to come into the sitting room? We'll all read together. And we all just sit in our separate chairs reading together, oh, sort of nice. quietly. Yeah. And it is, it's parallel play, isn't it? Where you're all yeah. just kind of doing your own thing parallel in the same reading. room. Yes. Yeah, it's very lovely. Well, yeah. thank you so much, Naomi. That has been brilliant. And it's been a really helpful look at just some of these distinctions between protection and control and and autonomy versus sort of keeping your child safe. So it's been a really uh, eye-opening conversation for me. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been really nice. Thank you so much for joining us for today's Home Education Matters podcast. See you at the next one. Have a lovely day. Bye.